0: Good morning, and welcome to Rising. We have another excellent show for you today. We're proceeding along with this first week in 2024, having a lot of fun as we go about it, aren't
1: we? Always, Robbie, always. So much fun.
0: All right, take it away.
1: Well, former President Donald Trump has formally appealed Maine Secretary of State, Sheena Bellows, ruling to bar him from the state's 2024 primary ballot. Trump's appeal to Kennebec County Superior Court kicks off a speedy timeline. A judge will have to either approve or reject Bellows' decision within 20 days of its being issued, which was December 28th. Now, depending on appeals in this case and in Colorado, whose state Supreme Court originally established precedent to ban Trump from the ballot, we could see the issue kicked all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which has never ruled on the meaning of the 14th Amendment insurrection ban. Now, the woman at the center of all of this, Shana Bellows, was forced to answer to the political implications of her ruling in a CNN interview yesterday. Let's tune in. Do
2: you have any concern uh, taking Trump off the ballot risks tearing tearing the country apart.
1: My duty under Maine election law and the Constitution and the oath I swore to the Constitution is was to look exclusively at the hearing and the evidence before me and make a decision based on the law. Neither political considerations nor personal considerations for my safety could enter into that decision. I had a duty and an obligation to follow the Constitution, as do all of us who serve
0: in government. Now, as the Trump legal team wages war on the boss's issues with the law, the former president's campaign crew is continuing full steam ahead on another front, the 2024 election. Trump told Breitbart News yesterday he was thinking of renting out Madison Square Garden in New York City, for a general election rally sometime next year. Trump also told the outlet he's considering rallies in New York, New Jersey, Virginia, New Mexico and Minnesota in an effort to expand the MAGA map to areas that have not traditionally been friendly to him in the past. So continuing to follow these legal developments for Donald Trump. I was reading that, and we should keep in mind that, you know, although we're mostly talking about how this would impact the general election, what, these, um, what the legal issues are actually still over the primary. Um, ballots have to be printed for those primaries, I think for the for, for both of them soon so that um, people who need absentee ballots like military service people can have can, can get their ballots in time. So that actually has to start up real soon. So it's interesting, you know if you think, well yes, the actual election, the Trump versus Biden theoretically election is still some ways away. Um, we, there is some urgency to whether Trump's going to be on the ballot or not for these primaries.
1: Yeah, there is. It- there's also the discussion about whether or not people could do write-in campaigns. And so in that case, you could, if it turns out that Sh- Shannabello's was wrong and you do have a right to vote for Donald Trump, that he's not banned by the 14th Amendment. Currently, these bans would mean that even write-in votes wouldn't be counted. So,
3: c- correct,
1: right. You know, you don't want to put someone at a disadvantage and say they have to rely on a write-in ballot. But even if they were precluded from actually being on the ballot, you still would have at least that possibility if these rulings in Maine and Colorado were, in fact, overturned. So that that is something. It's also worth noting—although, again, this is not an excuse if, in fact, it's not legally held up to have done something like this with such a clear kind of political valence to it—but it is also true that these are both states where that that Donald Trump did not win in 2020, that he does not need to win in order to win the presidency. So the stakes are lower in that respect. But again, that doesn't really get to the core kind of substantive kind of moral and political arguments that are being made around this.
0: Right, and you know, I mean, Theoretically, he could make it competitive in those states, right? There's nothing. Sure. Ab- there's nothing ordained by the, by the laws of nature or God that Colorado and Maine have to be places that. Um, it actually isn't Maine one of those those places that uh, gives its electoral votes in a, splits them up. Um, and because I, I thought he did pick up one of those last um, time, I'm not sure. Last time. I, I, I thought that's the case. I, I could be wrong. You know, correct me if that's um, inaccurate. Uh, what did you make of what Bellows had to say there? Look, I get it. The—I don't think—I'm not, I'm not out here saying that it is totally crazy to, on a strictly legal, technical way, interpret the 14th Amendment to mean that, that Trump is disqualified. I'm, I'm not—obviously, smart legal people have looked at it and reached that conclusion.
1: Including conservatives.
0: Um, including some ostensible conservatives. Um, it's more, you know, what that means— uh, it, it, which is the thrust of, of the question what that means for for democracy and the fabric of the country if based on what is sort of a technicality people you know would not be able to vote for the candidate who is by all accounts leading right now in a general election matchup ahead of uh, Biden and RFK jr um, somewhat behind that. So I I understand her saying that, like, look, I have to just look at, you know, the law. Um, It was interesting she she referenced her personal safety. I I guess I know she was, um, she's received, I'm sure... A gazillion death threats, and I think well, was, she was swatted, swatted as well. I, that's something. Uh, actually, Repu- Marjorie Taylor Greene was swatted, and uh, another Republican were swatted over the weekend. There's been a number of, of uh, those kinds of things lately. But um, right, what do, and what it's do you
1: dangerous thing? and bad. It it's was, very bad, it's, it was very dangerous of, of her the, being swatted. Well,
0: sure, regardless of who is the right. target of it or the political. Yeah,
1: um, I actually think that. What was it? Who was it? Wolf Blitzer asking her yeah. that question? It was a very bad question. If the law precludes you from running for president, regardless of whether that splits the country up, you have to follow the constitution. There's very good reasons for people who committed an insurrection to not be president of the United States of America. The problem is whether or not she was able to make that factual determination without a trial, without a finding of actual fact. That is exactly what's going on with all of these um, insurrection cases that are midstream. And it does feel like that's a premature decision. But asking whether and the abstract the 14th amendment right. should ever be applied seems to be completely wrong headed why because you'll get a bad result there're many legal results that people object to but you have to follow the letter of the constitution if a 13 year old ran for president, nobody would be asking, well, would it be wrong to ban them from the, b- the ballot if they're really, really popular? No, that's not how these things work. And I do think it's really irresponsible, frankly, for journalists to be framing it that way, as opposed to getting to the substantive issue here, which is did Donald Trump, in fact, foment? Participate in an insurrection, right? And
0: are his actions, even if you think they're bad and might have might violate some law, and he's legally going to be liable, and do they constitute an insurrection? Right? Do they do they have do they contain the the the? Is, is violence necessary? Is right. the seizing of arms yeah. is the argument necessary for that kind of thing? My line of a, questioning
1: would right, be more a, interesting. A,
0: which distinguishes it from the, you know, are you are you 35 yet? Where were you born? Kind of question, which I, I think most people would realize are more objective. Although there was some, right? Wasn't there debate over like John John McCain was born in the in the with um, the, the okay. Panama Canal yeah. Zone or something yeah. like that? And so there actually was um, a question. But again, in that case, it would have been if it was ambiguous, it would have been weird for an election, uh, an unelected. Um, uh, bureaucrat type person to just unilaterally disqualify him on behalf of all Americans without any kind of evidentiary hearing. Right, trial and obviously
1: we had a great deal of debate as uh, about whether or not Hawaii counted as America for the benefit of uh, Barack Obama.
0: Right. Well, and, and and but right. And if some <laughs> some re- Republican official acting on that uh, totally wrong slur had taken him off the ballot, I think people would have objected to that.
1: Right. Well, we don't want to miss this news item. A man entered and opened fire in the Colorado Supreme Court on Tuesday night. The man apparently stole a gun from a police officer guarding the building. The suspect was arrested and no one was hurt. Investigators confirmed a high probability that the event was not related to the Colorado hmm. Supreme Court's decision. Interesting. Hmm. They must have made somebody else mad too. I, I suppose so. We'll follow up on that story as more details yeah, emerge. Literal politi-
0: violence always bad. Don't do it. Um, always good to tamp down. Um, let cooler heads prevail because violence never solves anything. More rising right after this. The explosive plagiarism saga of former Harvard president Claudine Gay appears to have come to a close. So you'll notice I said former there, because yesterday Gay announced she was resigning her position effective immediately. Gay's resignation means that she has had the shortest tenure of any Harvard president at just six months and two days. Now, Gay publicly posted her letter of resignation, writing, quote, after consultation with members of the corporation, it has become clear that it's in the best interest of Harvard for me to resign so that our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge with a focus on the institution rather than any individual. Gay added that it has been distressing to have my doubt cast on uh, to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor, to bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am, and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus.
1: Conservatives took a victory lap following Gay's announcement. Manhattan Institute senior fellow Chris Rufo, who likely played a key role in Gay's ousting, tweeted, rather than take responsibility for minimizing anti-Semitism, committing serial plagiarism, intimidating the free press, and damaging the institution, she calls her critics racist. This is the poison of DEI ideology. Glad she's gone. New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who led the initial hearing that landed gay in hot water, posted two down. Harvard knows that this long-overdue forced resignation of the anti-Semitic plagiarist president is just the beginning of what will be the greatest scandal of any college or university in history.
0: Al Sharpton had choice words on gay's firing, vowing to protest her opponents, and claiming that racism was responsible, and he was hardly the only one there. Fox News reported this. Let's watch.
4: Sharpton saying, quote, this is an attack on every black woman in this country who's put a crack in the glass ceiling. It's an assault on the health, strength and future of diversity, equity and inclusion. Would we only be so lucky?
1: Here now to discuss is Stephen Thrasher, author of The Viral Underclass, which is just out in soft cover uh, yesterday. Uh, the rest of the title is The Human Toll of inequality uh, When Inequality and Disease Collide. And then he's also the Daniel H. Renberg Chair of Social Justice and reporting at Northwestern University. Welcome to the show, doctor.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Now, Dr. Thrasher, uh, you're on today because you did a viral thread yesterday, and no pun intended with your book title, uh, in which you took a take that I didn't see Uh, very often reflected, you pointed out that despite the perception that uh, Claudine Gay was fired for doing too much to defend the right, the free speech rights of pro-Palestinian advocates on Harvard campus, that in fact she was pretty middling in that role. Can you elaborate?
2: Certainly. I've been watching this case over the past couple of months, and I predicted that it would end exactly as it ended uh, yesterday. I thought that she was not going to start in the next semester, and you could see lots of reasons why that was building up to that point. Uh, but I had been pretty disappointed in her and I've just been watching her to see what she was going to do in this job, because as you and I have discussed on, on your podcast and um, in, in books like um, Elite Capture, we've seen the kind of person who comes into sort of a role like this, where they're presented as if they're going to be a great person for DEI, that they are a, a different kind of face than we've seen in these positions before. But they're also they're often put in those positions explicitly to police their own kind. And so when everything started to happen, after October 7th, uh, Dr. Gay first came into the news in my purview when she came down very hard on pro-Palestinian students in speech. Um, she uh, wrote a letter that uh, basically said students shouldn't and faculty should not be using uh, the phrase from the river to the sea. And she really conflated anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in a very dangerous way. I'm glad just two months later, I feel like we have more vocabulary and opportunities to even talk about this. But before those conversations developed at all, she really came down hard on under Palestinian students. And then there was an incident um, where pro-Palestinian students were uh, being attacked by pro-Zionist students and a black male student tried to intervene. He eventually got uh, uh, evicted from his housing for... Successfully de escalating this situation. And I noticed that uh, many Black justice workers from around the world were asking President Gay to step in on behalf of this Black student who had very successfully used tactics of nonviolent resistance to de escalate a situation and was punished for it. Um, and I saw very clearly that she was not going to be helping anyone who, you know, maybe looked a bit like her. She was very much looking out for herself. But when the same things that she was enforcing on other people, were turned on her, that's when the conversation turned about race and affecting her job.
0: Yeah. Well, look, I've been saying for weeks now that I don't think she's a very—I mean, the problems at Harvard predate her. Obviously, she hasn't been in the job very long, but I've, I've mentioned repeatedly that Harvard is ranked dead last by a well-reputed campus free speech organization that has chronicled um, violation of of. Uh, pro-Israel students' free speech rights and pro-Palestinian students' free speech rights and free speech uh, issues having nothing to do with, with Israel or Gaza or any of that. And that, uh, again, maybe she wasn't given enough time to turn that around at all, but uh, but that's a deplorable record. Um, however, I mean, we can't, you know, skip past the part which she's really— being, um, I mean, she's resigned, so she can be resigning for whatever she wants. She want, I think she wants to make it more about the fallout from the hearing, but she was caught it, with numerous instances of uh, what many experts have described as plagiarism. So does it, you know, does it really matter any of this other stuff or the reason people went after her when uh, on this the charge seems to fit pretty accurately,
2: no? Well, of course it matters why people went after her. I mean, all of this uh, behind the the reason we're even talking about this today, of course, is Israel and Palestine. And that's the reason I don't think that she would have come in as close uh, purview and scrutiny had this not happened. And because Harvard, like so many universities, including mine, including every university in the United States, gets caught up in what's happening in Israel and Palestine. that's why so much of the scrutiny appears. And so I think it is very important to think about and look at how she responded from a position of power uh, in terms of dissent and language and matters of free speech with her own students. Uh, And she did not give grace to what she, uh, what students were saying, what faculty were saying. She did not give even grace or even space for the experts on anti-Semitism and on the Middle East amongst her own faculty. They they were not invited to be a part of her anti-Semitism task force. And so when she very infamously fumbled the bag uh, in front of the Congress and when she was being asked about these issues and, and did not answer um, very well she asked for the same kind of grace that she did not get and then as people started interrogating her record and I cannot speak to any of the particularities of um, of you know what was found in her record except to say that the amount of scrutiny of it did seem to be obscene and, and you know, should not have been you know, the front page story of the New York Times for multiple days throughout the month of December um, and many of us would not want, you know, to have every college paper of ours gone through with a fine-tooth comb. But I can't speak to the particularities of her paper. But the reason why so much of that was happening was because she was um, now caught up in what was happening between Israel and Palestine. And there was a real difference, as I said, in the way between she, the way she talked to her faculty and students, and the way that she was talked to. And even though she very hard, yeah, I think, uh, I, I, from what we see publicly, she seemed to try very, very hard. To appease the people who were telling her, you need to crack down on anti-Palestinian speech, and you need to take a pro-Israel stance. And even though she she did that, um, it still she still ended up falling herself because uh, no dissent is allowed around this issue. And so a lot of a lot of focus came on her past record. Um, but that's not that's the kind of focus that we've never seen of any kind of president before. Well, yeah, yeah, we have
1: actually seen some precedent for this. Um, I was reminded that Neil Gorsuch uh, during his confirmation process was found to have plagiarized extensively as well. And people were recirculating the highlighted portions of his work, which showed that he succumb to these same issues. Um, Charles Ogletree similarly faced uh, charges of plagiarism, and, of course, quite notoriously Alan Dershowitz as well, without any of these same kind of uh, repercussions for them having done so. And and, and to 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 Robbie's question and point as well, when you have Elise Stefanik, who is, again, one of the architects of what happened at the hearing, saying one down, two to go, well, the others don't have any. There's no evidence that any of them similarly had any kind of academic misconduct. But the implication seems that we're going to keep digging until we find some pretext to get rid of them, not because something we know exists, but because we know that their stated positions on Israel-Palestine, despite being relatively milquetoast from the perspective of the left, are too sympathetic to Palestinian voices on campus for the liking of, again—I don't want to erase this from this dynamic—the billionaire donors who threatened to withdraw money from Harvard. and the other well-funded interest groups that are really driving this campaign. I also want to give you a chance just to weigh in, um, lastly, on what I think of as a left critique of identity politics. The right uh, target on DEI seems to be—well, I don't want to cast dispersions, but largely a critique of diversity In the workplace, any kind of diversity initiative to try to rectify what is, for the entire history of this country, a preference for white people, white men, and specifically holding positions of power to the exclusions of others based on prejudice. A left critique of DEI and identity politics goes to what you were talking about before the idea that people like Roxanne, sorry, like and Gay are put in these positions to make it seem like the university is actually attendant to the interest of a more diverse community at the same time that they carry water for the same kind of elite billionaire interests that are driving all of the decision-making of the rest of the university. And I wanted to give you a chance to weigh on how people should be thinking about this as they're looking at this play out, and they're looking at uh, racial tropes being weaponized in certain kinds of ways, and they're looking at what seems like a very bad faith attack at the same time that they don't really have an alliance of interest with Claudine Gay as a human being. How do we tease that apart without coming off as, like, uh, as, as Al Sharpton does in generalizing Claudine Gay, one of the most elite privileged black women in the world, to the plight that is very different being experienced by other black women and other working class and poor women across the country.
2: So I think there, there are really two important things to to keep in mind as we look at this, because this dynamic is going to play out again. If they can take down the president of Harvard, they can take down every almost anyone in academia. And my interest is less about her personally, but knowing that that they were successful with her, that means they can come after anyone. And as you said, with a variety of reasons why. It doesn't have to be plagiarism, they can just kind of keep scrutinizing, scrutinizing, scrutinizing until they, they try to find something. So one dynamic I think it's important to look at is to understand that Claudine Gay as a black woman and the president of Harvard is only one kind of black woman who works at Harvard, right? And university presidents, one of their major things they're there to do is to manage money and manage finance. They're almost always going to try to bust unions. And so there are lots of black women who are in service worker unions at universities. Um, They're, you know, they work in kitchens, they work in cleaning, they're also professors, they're also staff, they're also students. And so Claudine Gay is only one kind, and it's important not to conflate and think about the problems that she's facing and to, to necessarily think that those are more important or different than say, um, service workers, faculty, or staff who are also black women and and facing uh, the same and even worse conditions that black women face in in the workplace. Um, The other thing that I think is really, really important to think about and understand right now is that whatever the right is doing, they could not do without what we think of as classical liberals, right? Like Christopher Ruffo, Uh, could not have been successful as he very clearly said he wanted to be and getting Claudine Gay to go If the New York Times hadn't played ball and put, you know, however many dozens of stories about her on the front page. And so as we think about what's happening going forward from this successful uh, ouster of this president uh, and the way that that's going to be turned on other professors, uh, but also on unions, on other kinds of workers around the country, um, we have to be very, very critical of the role of organizations like the New York Times making that happen, uh, not just at the level of opinion writing and ed boards, but on the disparate. Proportionate amount of reporting that goes into them. You know, there's a disproportionate amount of scrutiny that looked at uh, Claudine Gay's record from decades ago, and there's a way, way disproportionate amount of scrutiny looking at her, the president of PAN, the president of MIT. You know, At the same time, there's very, very little coverage uh, around this issue of Israel and Palestine, say, and how the UAW has passed the ceasefire resolution and the Postal Workers Union. These major, major unions have done so. And the press um, is very much focusing on a handful of elites uh, that gives us really just a subset of ideas of what's going on, while other much broader, more important things are happening that are affecting many more workers, many more faculty, many more students.
0: I mean, I'm i I must push back. Look, everyone could have more comprehensive coverage of everything on the planet, and we can sit here all day and critique how many of what headlines there are, which usually correspond to what is performing most successfully on the pages, which reflects what the audience wants to read, and no media company does um, uh, will, will consistently deliver things that their audience doesn't want to read. That's just the realities of the business. But anyway, you said they could keep at this until they could get rid of anyone in academia? Does that mean everyone in academia is a plagiarist? And you, Brianna, proposed several other examples of not conservatives. Conservatives didn't invest plagiarism charges. It's happened over and over again where liberal and mainstream and progressive people have pursued plagiarism powers, uh, uh, accusations against people like, like Gorsuch. Are we to reject those because those are politically motivated? As I said yesterday, everything is politically motivated and thus we must deal with the charges themselves. She does appear to be guilty of exactly what she was accused of, so and I don't understand so, excusing so, this because- Robbie, that's, so was
1: Gorsuch. Gorsuch was also guilty of what he was accused of. Okay, but of. By, the, by your logic, I should ignore that, because that was politically no.
0: motivated. But the,
1: the question is, why were there no consequences for Gorsuch, Gorsuch but there are consequences for Claudine Gay? Why is it that there are no consequences for Alan Dershowitz, but there were consequences for Claudine Gay? That's why you can't extract the rationale, the motivation for these inquiries. I have agreed with you. You can look at the writing of every single- professor, president at Harvard or any other university, if you're genuinely interested in academic integrity, you would, of course, be motivated to do a holistic evaluation. But what we're doing now is the equivalent of academic- The guest has said there's too much coverage of this one specific case. We can, I, 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 no, want, no, I want no, Dr. No, Bradshaw no, to no, respond no, to that. No, that's
2: not... No, you, I, re- no. Well, I, I reject the premise of how you uh, said what I said. I said that they can keep doing more and more in scrutiny to try to get of everyone. I did not say everyone's a plagiarist. I did not say I'm a plagiarist, but I particularly can say this about people like me who study the things that I do. I'm a black gay man. I write about gay sex. I write about HIV. I write about very intimate matters. And if the entire media machine wants to go through everything I've ever written and try to find one sentence that they can try to say makes me look bad because I write about gay stuff, that could happen. That's the kind of thing that I think is going to happen going forward, and that's something that is that makes particularly uh, black academics vulnerable, which is a part of why I'm annoyed that somebody like Gay put so many of us in this position.
0: Well, and if something, and if you got in trouble for something like that, you could come to me, and I would write in your defense. I have a long history defending professors and students who have gotten into um, hot water for controversial or provocative speech, um, whether they've offended the left or the right. This just seems a totally different case for me because she—it's an academic violation, um, one that Harvard should take seriously, given but, that
1: students get disciplined for it. But she's not a student, and this is, I think, what's really important. She was a student 30 years ago or however long ago. Her academic advisors reviewed her dissertation, not just didn't just pass her, but gave her glowing recommendations. And now a past mistake that was not caught at the time and not caught at a point in time where she 17 of them could have corrected it. and, And there were many, many, many by Gorsuch and many much more substantive mistakes made by Alan Dershowitz. And again, the issue is the disproportionate treatment, not the fact of the mistake having been made. This feels like it's tantamount to a kind of academic stop and frisk. If You could say that stop and frisk doesn't matter and that violating the civil liberties of people as they're walking down the street and driving their cars and living their lives doesn't matter because, oh, if you found the illegal substance in your car, then you are guilty. Why can you, how can you complain? But if you're disproportionately policing certain parts of the population, and disproportionately putting that burden on them, Conservatives that is that has been found to be a violation of people's constitutional rights. Conservatives would
0: utterly reject the idea that, um, that um uh, progressive or whatever ideology you want to ascribe to clouding gay are disproportionately um, scrutinized in this matter when, again, every conservative who publishes a book gets this treatment from um, from CNN-type reporters. And that's fine. They can do that. And I'm, I'm not he- up here saying that I, I don't know the the facts of the Gorsuch case or, frankly, the Dershowitz case. If they were guilty, they should have held
1: to account. I do. Um, and they were guilty.
0: not okay, well, they they they, held to fine. account. I'm not up
1: here defending them. I'm up here saying clouding gay is clearly guilty and should be held to account. Dr. Thatcher, I just also want to point out, you are saying not what Robbie said. You did not say that Claudine Gay was a progressive, quite the opposite. And I think I don't want that to get lost in the fray. That this is really the critique here is really that people like Claudine Gay get held up by these institutions to have a, a fake veneer of progressivism, of being attended to the needs of various diverse minority groups, and do not, in fact, hold that role. And yet, it is those marginalized groups that have to carry the bag and get all of the public perception of having failed when a controversy like this happens. I want to give you the final well, word.
0: And I, I, I do as well, but, and just—you can respond to this as well. I'm seeing people like Al Sharpton, who we quoted, Ibram X. Kendi, and others, uh, Jamel Hill, saying this is, this is racism is the reason—this um, is, is explicitly an act of racism is why she's being um, ousted here. And it sounds like you're—that's not exactly what you're saying.
2: No, I I think that um, there is a way that racism is being talked at now by people who are sort of her peers that was not being talked about when she was engaged very much in the structural racism that happens in trying to suppress Palestinian descent, or that happens because Uh, The fact that so many percent wise, so many people who are supporting Palestine uh, are people of color, faculty of color, students and staff of color. Um, And so that is also a matter of racism that she was very much helping to enforce. Now that it's come for her, she and her peers are talking about it a little bit more. Um, But I think that it is a mistake to just sort of take the Sharpton line and say this is only a matter of racism. But also, um, as you were just saying, Brianna, that the people left holding the bag are going to feel the effects of the systemic racism um, because she was sort of in this. Overseer position in between different powers. She thought that she could play the game for her own benefit. Ultimately, it didn't work. Uh, but the fallout for that is not going to be felt by her peers as much as it's going to be felt by people in, in in institutions like hers who have much less power, who are sort of downstream of where all this comes. And that is that is something that is going to be a matter of racism that we have to deal with.
1: Dr. Thas- Thasher, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. The Viral Underclass now out on paperback. Thanks again. Thank you. Breaking news out of the Middle East as Israel carried out a drone strike last night in Beirut, Lebanon, to assassinate senior Hamas leader Salah al-Aruri. Let's take a look at the aftermath of that attack. Muslim paramilitary group Hezbollah had previously vowed to enact huge consequences if Israel took military actions within Lebanon's borders. In a statement released following the assassination, Hezbollah said it considers the attack a dangerous attack on Lebanon, its people, its security, its sovereignty, and its resistance. It confirms that it will not go unanswered and unpunished, and that, quote, this significant day will be followed by more important ones, so beautiful patience and beautiful patience.
0: The assassination has had a ripple effect on the current war between Israel Israel and Hamas, the Jerusalem Post reports that hostage negotiations between Hamas terrorists and Israel have been frozen while Israel remains on high alert for potential Hezbollah reprisals. Here now to discuss further is Dr. Shida Parsi, executive vice president at the Quincy Institute and retired Lieutenant Colonel Jeffrey Korn, former senior advisor to the U.S. military and George R. Killam, Jr., chair of criminal law at Texas Tech University School of Law. Um, Lieutenant Colonel, I'll start with you. How important a military objective was this, um, taking out this leader? And does this um, I- increase the risk of further terrorism against Israel or even the United States?
3: Well, I think the second point is a more of a strategic policy question, not so much a legal question, but I think obviously conducting this attack in Beirut will increase the likelihood of confrontation between Hezbollah and Israel on the northern border. In terms of the value of the target, that requires a certain degree of speculation. We were not involved in the decision-making process, but we do know from public reporting that this was a senior Hamas military operative. Uh, In fact, I would suggest that even the the lead-in where we characterize this as an assassination is a little bit misleading. An assassination suggests that this was not a lawful object of attack under the international laws of war or international humanitarian law. If it was a senior military leader, then he was a legitimate military target, then the question would become, was the attack conducted in accordance with the rules of war? And then there's the secondary issue of the relationship between Israel and Lebanon and the justification for violating uh, Lebanese sovereignty as a result of conducting an attack in their territory. But in terms of the value of the target, I don't think Israel would have conducted this attack in this context unless they were uh, satisfied that the value of the target was quite significant.
1: Dr. Parsia, I'd like to get you to weigh in on that. How typical is this sort of a drone strike operation into another country uh, that Israel's not technically at war with formally? Is it appropriate to make the analogy that some people have made this is akin to, let's say, Mexico having a legitimate military target in Texas and doing a drone strike on a uh, building there to, uh, to kill that target?
4: well this didn't used to be uh, an accepted norm uh, accepted conduct but uh, following the global war on terror and the bush administration's expansion of what could be justified as the use of force um, uh, we've seen more and more countries use that specific uh, um, uh, defense in order to be able to uh, conduct attacks of this kind we see how The Turks are using it in Syria, the Russians use it in Ukraine, Iran has used it when it is targeted, what it claims to be Israeli assets uh, in um, uh, Iraq. But the Israelis have a longer history of doing this long before this started to become a norm that the United States uh, believed was a legitimate one. Now, whether this is successful or not in a strategic sense is a completely different question because Israel has been conducting these type of assassinations or killings uh, for quite some time and without having any significant impact on the strategic trajectory of its conflict with its neighbors uh, or various groups. On the contrary, what we have seen is a trend in which most of these military uh, personnel that have been taken out by the Israelis have been replaced by more radical ones and the conflict has only intensified.
0: Dr. Parsi, if, uh, as some would say, I think if Hezbollah is harboring um, or protecting the terrorists who were involved in the planning of October 7 senior leadership, um, then you know what is Israel to ask nicely to turn them over? Obviously that wouldn't work, um, giving them no choice to take this kind of action.
4: Well, I think at this point it's really not so much uh, about the legality of this or not. I think the more pressing issue is that will this spark a much wider escalation uh, that will widen the war, something that the Israelis uh, have increasingly said that they are preferring. They've issued warnings to Hezbollah to move uh, um, to the Litani River and uh, claim that they would attack uh, Lebanon if they don't. So and and if that war would then expand into also dragging the U.S. into it. So I, I think that is the most pressing issue right now, because we have seen over the course of the 10 or so plus weeks that this war has been going on, that we are inching closer and closer to an escalation that would bring in more actors into the war and potentially bring the U.S. into that war as well. Israel knew very well what it was doing, and he knew very well that this was a step that likely could escalate matters into that war.
1: Mr. Korn, is that a concern of yours, that this type of attack will lead to an escalation that will ultimately bring the U.S. more uh, pointedly into the conflict?
3: Well, look, let's be be clear. There's already ongoing hostilities on the northern border of Israel between Hezbollah and Israeli forces. Hezbollah has been routinely launching rockets and anti-tank missiles across the border, and there have been retaliatory strikes by the Israeli defense forces. Whether or not this will result in an escalation with Hezbollah, I think is it's very difficult to assess. I mean, in some ways, you can see this as signaling to Hezbollah Israel's willingness and readiness to take action in Lebanon against senior leaders it believes are responsible for conducting aggression against the state of Israel. And let's not also forget that the very presence of Hezbollah military capabilities in southern Lebanon is in direct violation of a UN Security Council resolution and Lebanon ostensibly has an obligation to prevent the use of that territory for military purposes that area was supposed to be demilitarized and never was when the Israelis withdrew the vacuum was filled by Hezbollah so there are a lot of complexities here but I would agree with uh, my fellow panelists that every Action in this conflict, of course, creates risk of unintended consequences and escalation. That's the nature of conflict itself. Policymakers and national security advisors and leaders have to make complicated assessments of cost-benefit, risk, reward. And it's very difficult. But I your 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 colleague made the point. I mean, Israel is in a very difficult position. They identify a senior leader being given refuge in Beirut, they have the opportunity to conduct an attack against him, and they have been doing this for a long time. In international law, this is known as the unable or unwilling doctrine, and the United States is an advocate of this doctrine. This is the same theory the United States used when it conducted the raid in Abbottabad that killed Osama bin Laden. So there are many examples, as my fellow panelists indicated, of states exercising the right of self-defense in the territory of another state when it determines it's unable or unwilling to prevent the use of its territory by its enemy. But it is a complicated strategic policy issue for sure.
1: Dr. Parsi, does the targeted nature of the attack in Beirut give rise to the implication that the mass destruction in Gaza, in which over 20,000 people have now been killed, uh, is not collateral damage that had to happen?
4: I, I think to claim that 20,000 or 22,000 at this point are legitimate collateral damage is simply not uh, not something that is compatible with international law. We're seeing now how uh, the South Africans have um, uh, raised a claim uh, with the International Criminal Court um, uh, C- court of Justice to um, um, accusing Israel of deliberately engaging in genocide. Uh, if you read that uh, brief, uh, it is filled with extensive details in which the intent of genocide is made clear by Israeli officials themselves from the very beginning of this conflict through their own statements. It's gonna be very interesting to see where that goes. Uh, and if it, it uh, is approved, it's also going to have significant implications for the United States, mindful of the Biden administration's active facilitation of what uh, is taking place in Gaza, particularly the slaughter slaughtered place, mindful of the fact that the massive amount of weapons that the United States has um, uh, provided Israel with since October 7th that has been used uh, to kill these uh, um, uh, people in Gaza. So, and again, I think the thing that I'm most concerned about is The rather nonchalant way that the biden administration is treating this risk of an escalation that can drag the u.s into it regardless of what one thinks about what israel is doing in gaza etc i think my views are quite clear on this i am perplexed by the administration's nonchalance when it comes to how this is risking bringing the u.s into the war we know for a fact now that during the six days that there was a ceasefire there were no attacks by Iraqi militias and Syrian militias against US troops. Just the day before, there were six of them. We know that the attacks by the Houthis dramatically reduced as well. We know that through a ceasefire, we can get the type of de-escalation that also dramatically reduces the attacks on the US troops there and reduces the risk of the US getting dragged into war. Yet that seems to be the measure that the Biden administration is least inclined to pursue.
0: Dr. Parsi, Lieutenant Colonel Corn, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank
0: you. Illegitimate? That's what one-third of Americans say President Joe Biden's 2020 election win was, according to a Washington Post-University of Maryland survey from this week. Over 35% of people say he was not legitimately elected.
1: Speaking of elections, the views Joy Bayer made clear this week that she might not believe in them at all. I would say here is that I actually agree with Governor Gavin Newsom and David Axelrod. These are Democrats, leading Democrats, that say this would really cause a division that's almost insurmountable. And as someone that believes January 6th so was I, that bad, so wait one second. So what do you and, saying? Wait, Just one second. I don't think, one, I don't think the Supreme Court's going to hold this. I think they're going to overturn it, and it won't just be the originalists. I bet it's a 9-0 vote. Okay. I actually don't think they will hold this. So you but think, I think they, they did, should leave it to the voters or I, not? I think they should leave it to the voters. Oh, but okay. I, hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I don't, it's, it's hard for me to say I disagree with her, but I do because it's the rationale that she's, um, Put, uh, basing that on, I don't think in the abstract you cannot have a court decision that precludes someone excludes somebody from the ballot because they have violated the Constitution. The question is whether or not it's a clear enough finding of fact to feel like you can do so legitimacy without there being the differences the of, of opinion. And obviously, the question of insurrection is not one of those questions. It's
0: what uh, it's uh, what is the Latin phrase, um, "Fiat justitia." Um, let justice be done, though the heavens may fall, is the idea that, yes, no matter the consequence, even if everyone's furious, even if it tears the country apart, you have to follow the law, and the judges are just supposed to apply what the law says and what the Constitution says. Um, but as we've you know, previously discussed, this is not a open-and-shut um, question. There's a lot of open-to-interpretation. There's a lot of fact-finding still to be done in for you know what actually happened in the weeks leading up to January 6th. And I do think you can't get around the optics, like, you know, setting aside what what the judge decides or what the the main secretary uh, official says, um, a Democratic party that has made, from a media perspective or from a messaging perspective, that has made the existential threat to democracy, um, its it's sort of main pitch to voters over the last couple years, um, looks somewhat suspect to lean into the idea that um, Donald Trump should be kept off the ballot, and as as that view host was noting, not a, every Democrat has done that. Frankly, uh, Gavin Newsom has disagreed with the ruling. I, a lot of uh, uh Pundits, even of a of a liberal mainstream uh, persuasion, have said yeah. it's somewhat suspect.
1: But the of that, I'm sorry, is a bunch of these same neoliberals who are always stretching and climbing, trying to find some common ground with the right, in the, in the, in the, under the auspices of um, like reaching across the aisle. But they're really just the same kind of elite consensus that always exists. There is a crisis of democracy in America, but it has nothing to do with Donald Trump. It has to do with the fact that there are two corporate parties that are lockstep on every important issue. In United States of America, including war, and who overwhelmingly ignore the will of the people who are not actually anywhere near as divided as our media system and our political system pretends that they are. Majorities—overwhelming majorities of Americans want Medicare for all. Overwhelming majorities of Americans want common-sense gun reform. Overwhelming majorities of Americans want there to be a minimum wage raise. Overwhelming majorities of Americans want us not to be um, engaging in a genocide and want a ceasefire in in the Gaza Strip. And, and so when when people when people like David Axelrod are saying things like, ah, oh, well, I don't think this would look good, they're concerned about the optics for the Democratic Party. They're not care. They don't care at all about substantive justice and the real crisis of democracy that exists when you look at the 2014 Princeton study that shows that there is no relationship between the will of the people and what elected officials pursue in Congress.
0: Well, look, I agree that I agree on some of what you just said. There's a a, a especially on foreign policy, a manufactured elite consensus that is very uh, uh, shared by both parties and does not correspond to public opinion, and is and it conti- has continuation regardless of the turnover in Washington. Um, there, it, it's it's increasingly difficult for people to voice their opinion and have it actually reflected in the policies. I agree on that. Uh, some of the policies you brought up, I think it depends how they're. Pulled, then when they start being explained, the devil's in the details. What, what and then obviously not, I don't fundamentally care that what?
1: what is that? Well, no, right, 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 do, right. You're saying there's no actual division, like there are coffee? divisions. Versus, do you like um, uh, plant beans ground up into brown dirt poured through a water filtration system? I mean, you could frame anything in a way that makes this point. No, but saying
0: say, say most Americans support common sense gun reform is too broad no, to be a manageable, there, actionable no. statement. That to some people that means yes, criminals shouldn't be allowed to have guns. We should. That's not take... what the poll
1: question is. That's how I'm characterizing it in this state, in this conversation. Yeah,
0: and then it, that would de- it depends state most by state. Most people want
1: background checks. Most people want folks who have been convicted of crimes not to get guns right. anymore. Right, Most people want red flag laws.
0: Right, but they, most people, well, right, most people do support those things, and a lot of states have those things.
1: But not all states have those things, and even in states where most people want those things, you have opposition—usually, I'm sorry, Republican opposition—to those common-sense reforms being in place, not because the Republicans think they're going to lose their voter base if they vote for them, but because they're going to lose their funding base from groups like the NRA that give mightily to folks who uh, advance uh, legislation in their interest?
0: I mean, gun, <laughs> gun control, uh, gun, gun rights are, I think, more popular than you're giving them credit for, even though. It's a not about of... gun
1: rights. You can reframe it to gun rights, but we're not talking, gun rights are not in dispute. We have the Second Amendment. The question is like every other right that we have in the United States of America, it's circumscribed by the fact that we right. live in a society. I do not have the right to shoot you. Is that a gun? Is, my, is a gun right my right to mow you down I, in the street? That's uh, probably a hundred percent. Of 100%. course not. <laughs> of course it isn't. So like broadening the conversation, and if you're talking about overly broad terms that are getting too much purchase, that's exactly what you're doing. I'm not talking about gun rights. I'm talking about the fact that the majority of Americans realize that to feel safe in their communities, there have to be some limits on those rights, including not letting people who are demonstrably dangerous get access to firearms.
0: Well, right, but then how we do that ends up being messy because I would support some policies to disarm criminals that you probably wouldn't. So it's not like we all. All agree, and oh my God, Congress just stands in the way because we're all marching in lockstep and they won't do what they want. That's just not true. It's a, it's a very divided country with it's l- not different a very cultural. Divided country. No, it is. But it you can keep pressing
1: is. that. But the, the listeners should be very, very aware that there is broad consensus over a majority of issues that go to your pocketbook issues and the way that you think that you should relate to your neighbors. The privacy rights and interests that you want for yourself are broadly believed in, which is why we have seen so much outpouring when conservatives across the country have tried to come into your bedroom and tell you what kind of contraceptives you want to use, whether or not you have the right to choose to terminate a pregnancy, whether or not you are going to be hauled into court the way um, that uh, African-American woman whose name I'm blocking is being charged uh, for um, improperly disposing of a fetus because she had a miscarriage on her toilet in her own home. Those are the kinds of infringements on privacy that most Americans agree on, and yet we have Republicans across the country taking the Dobbs opinion and running with it and that is frankly largely white Republicans have lost midterms because there's been a pushback against that even within Republican Party voter bases.
0: It's a yes it's a I mean you switch issues it, that is a that's been well acknowledged by people on the right now that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, right, not, so not in that. All right. So this, this is what country we in. There we're, are some issues where there is, there is agreement on, but the idea that we all just agree on everything and government won't see fit to do what we want. Well,
1: Robbie, again, you're broadening. I didn't say we all just agree on everything. I said there are enormous substantive issues that majorities of Americans agree on and have agreed on for years that don't get any purchase in Congress because Congress members won't support it. We were just talking about yesterday, um, reforming Congress members' abilities to do insider trading. Overwhelmingly, Americans want them to stop, to not be able to trade stocks at all. And do we get any movement on that in Congress? No. And we can sit here and pretend we're so divided, so divided, so divided. Or we can talk about the myriad issues that we were united on and try to push our Congress members and have accountability for our Congress members to actually do what they were elected to do. Or we can sit here and cherry-pick, oh, there's a trans— a trans uh, baseball player in Alabama to get mad at yeah, and, that's and have a, no movement and that's a in our 60, country. Well,
0: it's funny to bring that up. That's an, uh, that is an area where the vast majority of Americans, if you look yeah. at polling, it, want that not issue. to happen.
1: It's a privacy issue. I'm sure the vast majority of America can come to my home and say, I don't like your decorating decisions. That doesn't mean the Supreme Court should weigh in or a state court should weigh you in. You just said the government should do what what a vast majority of Americans want them to do. No, that, there's a, that, there's a how, how dare
0: they stand in the way? That's the exact same there's thing. There's a
1: difference between your personal privacy Rights and the rights to be free from government interference, and people who we say we can apply that to gun
0: to have, rights just as well.
1: I, I don't have to again, Robbie. I don't have to persuade you. The viewers know what their substantive issues are. I brought up yes. Uh, the viewers see that you want a majority to weigh
0: in and 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 do what uh, what government wants on the on the areas of uh, issues that matter to you, where you can plausibly read public support for them, and you don't want them to do that on the other issues. Okay. Meanwhile, a new uh, general election poll shows Donald Trump still in the lead at 37%, with Joe Biden trailing behind 34%, followed by independent candidate RFK Jr., 10% of the national vote. Vice President at Targeted Victory Consulting, Logan Dobson, responded to this poll on X, writing, Some of it is certainly a mirage, and there's lots of time for it to change, but RFK Jr. has been putting up some of the best third-party polling numbers in a generation. You wouldn't really know it reading most political coverage of the horse race.
1: JFK recently hired Del Bigtree, the CEO of the Informed uh, Consent Action Network, as his new comms director. This group has been described as an anti-vax group that sees skepticism about principally autism. And a few weeks ago, Bigtree weighed in on the autism question and vaccines. Take a listen and judge for yourself.
3: The autism spectrum is claiming more and more lives every single year. Numbers now Uh, range between 1 in 20 and 1 in 35, depending on what study you look at, whether it's a boy or a girl, are now being diagnosed with autism. It truly is uh, the epidemic of our lifetime.
0: NBC News reporter Brandi Zadrozny responded to BigTree's new position, writing, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. hires Del BigTree, popular anti-vaccine activist, as his presidential campaign's communications director. The latest evidence that RFK's presidential run is dressed up as a national anti-vaccine um, campaign. So that's one of those um, misinformation mainstream reporters uh, who's very... Uh, big mad about a lot of the stuff RFK Jr. has to say on the COVID and especially vaccine issue. Okay, but that is not
1: really germane to the reality of the underlying fact. You can think that uh, uh, vaccine skepticism about autism is legitimate. I have talked at length on my own podcast with Kine Prashad about what is legitimate and what is illegitimate about uh, RFK Jr.'s claims. But it is... It is absolutely true that this organization goes a lot farther. It precedes COVID. This is not about COVID vaccines and goes a lot further in, in terms of raising skepticism that I think is largely unfounded with uh, vaccines and autism in particular. Um, the uh, bigs, I think I just closed this window. My apologies. Um, oh, here it is. The the individual, Del Bigtry, um, in particular, um, has gotten into some hot water um Take this with a grain of salt, criticized by the ADL, which has, um, you know, hit or hit there. (laughs) You're like,
0: is there another source in here?
1: (laughs) Um, But the substance of the criticism um, is that he was comparing um, in a similar way that RFK Jr. had done, the anti-vaccine movement and the pushback against them to what people in the Holocaust uh, had been going through. So regardless, I don't think you need the ADL to reflect on that being Mm -hmm. a um, alarming comparison. Seems like
0: a suspect choice for a campaign director. Uh, I'm not big into the connection between vaccines and autism. I think um, there's a lot of kind of unfounded assertions there, but people should be free to make their own decisions. And of course, the vaccines should be optional, not uh, not mandatory, the COVID vaccines. And, I mean, uh, it is
1: really fascinating to have cases. gone from having someone like Dennis Kucinich, who was so popular as his campaign manager, who was so popular, in part because he did foreground the issues, the socioeconomic issues that most Americans are dealing with. Um, You know, half the country can't respond to a $400 emergency. There's a health care crisis. People are— suffering and struggling. And it does seem like the media only wants to talk about that issue when they can say it's an inflation issue that can be blamed on one political act or another. There does seem to be a substantive disinterest in the well-being of average Americans. And instead, you see people, again, picking up on these kinds of issues that are relatively niche and I think are going to be unable to put a, a, a winning coalition behind them. Well, what? If- RFK Jr. stands a real chance of doing something.
0: Yeah, whatever he's doing, it's and And it's, it's frustrating
1: to see it somewhat
0: i mean he's he's polling very highly he's putting up the best third party polling numbers um, since uh, since Ross Perot um, biden way down i mean he's did the what, what was that poll we read earlier in the show it's like 40 35 10 um, he, he's he's obviously doing something right and uh, the media should cover him as if he i mean they should they don't have to cover him well, possibly they are, but they, they should covering, cover him yeah. more
1: they're covering him so now we get to have a debate about vaccines just like we'll have a debate about inflation, we'll have a debate about Trump going to jail, we have all of these debates. Well, and I think people have No, I'm
0: have sorry to, the d- debates don't all take place along the exact lines you wish they would, but.
1: And we'll have to uh, figure out if anything is gonna change for the lives of average Americans if Donald Trump gets elected, if Joe Biden gets elected, or if RFK Jr. gets elected.
0: That's what we shall work out. More Rising right after this. Oh, no, not Jimmy Kimmel. Well, NFL New York Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers actually suggested live on ESPN's air yesterday that comedian and host Jimmy Kimmel will be on Jeffrey Epstein's client list, which is expected to be released later this week. Let's watch. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Bring it up.
2: Bring it up, Foxy or somebody back there. Seats on it. You yeah, have Super Bowl 58. You'll see it. The emblem.
4: Put it on the screen. And then bring up 57 and 56. This
2: has something to do with the Epstein list that came out. <laughs> Feels like it's <laughs> like. supposed to be coming out
4: soon. That's supposed to be coming
1: out soon. Look,
2: this guy's been it's waiting in his wine people. cellar. Yeah. I've been waiting in my <laughs> wine <laughs> cellar for this <laughs> thing.
3: A lot of people, including Jimmy Kimmel, are really hoping that doesn't oh, geez, please. please. <laughs> All right.
2: All right. Obviously, a clip from this particular program was run on Jimmy Kimmel's show. uh Whenever Aaron brought up the, the list and then. Jimmy mocked him for it, Aaron has not forgotten about that, but here we are, sitting right in front of that nice bottle of scotch.
1: Kimmel slammed Rogers over these accusations, writing on X, Dear A-hole, for the record, I've not met, flown with, visited, or had any contact whatsoever with Epstein, nor will you find my name on any list, other than the clearly phony nonsense that soft-brained wackos like yourself can't seem to distinguish from reality. Your reckless words put my family in danger, keep it up, and we will debate the facts further in court. <clears throat> As of this recording, we're still waiting on the release of that full list.
0: So Rogers and Kimmel have history. They don't like each other. Um, Kimmel called Rogers a tin foil hatter, um, I think, about Epstein stuff. Um, obviously, Aaron Rogers shouldn't just say untrue things about <laughs> no, Jimmy Kimmel. Um, I think that was said in a kind of... Joking way, but uh, Kimmel has threatened to sue over it. So you got to watch stuff like that You can't just accuse people of things made up.
1: Why do you think there is so much interest? uh, Among celebrities in particular it seems in making these kinds of speculative claims about each other At the same time that there are so many of these same celebrities that seem to have close friendships Affinities for support for people that are confirmed to have been on Epstein's flight logs to have had relationship with Epstein, whether it's someone like Donald Trump, who is pictured numerous times with Epstein, who clearly flew around with Epstein, who was friends with Epstein, or someone like Bill Clinton, who you can say m- much of the same about, you know, who had Jillian uh, Max- Maxwell at his daughter's wedding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Oh, and I have to correct something I said yesterday. The painting of Bill Clinton um, in, in the lady dress—that yeah. uh, th- is real and it did belong to Epstein. It was in his New York uh, apartment. It was not uh-huh. on Epstein Island. Okay. Just, to, just just to <laughs> just to clarify, a lot of people wrote to me yesterday and uh, pointed out how I got that wrong. So I want to set the record straight. Um, yeah, look, there has been tremendous um, interest in the Epstein case in recent years. I don't know if from celebrities specifically. Certainly from uh, from. Right-wing people from independent populist type people. Um, honestly, I didn't know much about the, the case, the situation, um, until, uh, un- until the, the arrest and then death. Of Epstein, I, I hadn't heard of him, frankly, until then. And then, when I I talked about it a little bit on Fox, I used to be on Fox more often. And then, when I started hosting um, Rising, I, I noticed that there was huge interest in this subject, which I understand it because it's a it's a remarkable story. It, it's it's something that. That blows your mind if you're not, I think, accustomed to deep skepticism of our system and skepticism of rich and powerful people in government, in business, in law, etc. Um, it goes. Y- you say, you know, the kind of normal person reaction is, "Oh my God, how is it that this the case that this guy has been doing this sure. and he never got caught, or he kind of got caught and then he kept doing it? And why are these people associating with him? Why wouldn't they think more of, ab- about that?" But then people who are more skeptical of of institutions and the people at the top of them say, well, this this proves what we were saying all along, the people are corrupt. But
1: but it's not that. They're not saying that. They are weaponizing the existence of a high-profile case of a child abuser Mm -hmm. to suit their political whims when their political whims are actually, in fact, dramatically undermined by the existence of this man and his ties to the very politicians they purport are somehow not a part of the the elite, not a part of the blob. I
0: didn't, I didn't quite follow. So,
1: a- Aaron Rodgers is someone who said he's going to vote for RFK Jr. RFK Jr. has admitted to flying more than once on Epstein's plane. Now, that does not tie him to any specific accusation, obviously, of child mm-hmm. abuse. But if we're casting stones at politicians' affiliations with Epstein to say, I have a beef with Jimmy Kimmel, so I'm going to say that you're going to be associated with Epstein, when the guy you've already said you're going to support politically has admitted, has acknowledged that he has flown in Epstein's jet multiple times. When you have all of these people who are supportive of Donald Trump, who aver that he is not a part of the establishment, that he's outside of this elite cabal of people who are doing these horrible things, who had such a close relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, Whose uh, labor secretary was the guy that was the architect of Epstein's plea deal in the early odds that enabled him to get out of jail after his first charges of molesting children? Had to
0: resign uh, because of it. Look, I have seen a lot. I I will say in the last 24 hours, I've seen a number more of just concern. I mean, not people I can name, but conservative accounts saying that we want the truth, we want even if this is damning for Trump, he deserves it just as just as much as everyone else. Maybe that sentiment isn't real, but I've seen it expressed a lot more in the last 24 hours I, I than I had before that. It
1: does feel distasteful Which is good. to me for anybody to be weaponizing what is a tragic reality mm-hmm. of the world more broadly, but specifically what Jeffrey Epstein did to score political points and to make an accusation. I mean, we're kind of talking about this in a lighthearted way, and Aaron Rodgers brought this up in a kind of lighthearted, joking way, but there's something about the way that the discourse around Epstein is happening that pushes to the edges the horror of what he has actually been accused and convicted of. And I'm uncomfortable with it. I'm uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with it. It is is clearly at this point a political football, no pun intended. it's, people seem not to have an interest in Epstein because of how horrible it is that so no. many powerful people in a society get away with abusing minors but because it's a way to take your political opponents down
0: yeah but that's the way we're just we live in a totally partisan politicized society and the only way anyone ever gets taken down is if their enemies latch on to some convenient but true um, thing to go after them for that I mean that's I mean Trump <laughs> Biden ever like, There's a there's a there's a BS component to it because they're both you know weaponized witch hunt type things, but there's also legitimacy to it because uh, probably they both did legal things that are technically um, technically violate the law. In in Trump's case, having to do with the election. In Biden's case, um, having to do with uh, with his son's influence peddling. That we're gonna um, that we're gonna. Adjudicate and 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 people on the other side both want to defend them because that's just that's just how it goes That's how it is Well, now.
1: there's millions of people who would prefer to have a third-party candidate There's millions of people who once voted for Joe Biden who said they're not going to vote with him again Because they object to his support of the genocide in Gaza or because he reneged on his promise to raise the 15 uh, Raise the minimum wage which would be the first time since Well, that's policy but you were talking
0: about a no kind of malfeasance but, but,
1: or a No, but you said that the, the reason that we focus on these things is that the only way to take people down is to talk about these sort Sort of weaponized, yeah. non-substantive behaviors that they may or may not have engaged in, and I'm saying I don't think that's actually true. I think that most people, millions of people, many people, if not most people, are deeply engaged in the substance. But that kind of thing doesn't get breakthrough and traction in the media. I don't think millions media.
0: people are deeply engaged in the substance. Um, with respect to the Epstein situation, I think for me it matters more at like at what point the involvement is. I mean, obviously all the involvement is pretty distasteful and gross but i'm particularly interested in people like bill gates who can and and it seems like some bake of america officials and perhaps the government of the virgin islands still being involved with him after his his crimes are so are so public that he was prosecuted for child sex stuff um, so and obviously people on his client list i get so these are people ostensibly who received sexual services with with young girls from him, those are the clients, because that's the service he's providing, mm-hmm. right? So I guess, so anyone on that list, it doesn't matter at what time they entered into the, the arrangement, but I we're gonna find out, I guess, if we see new names or, or names we already know on that part of it.
1: Yeah, all right, well, stick with us. We have more Rising P right after this. More evidence of corruption in Washington. New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez is facing More allegations of making positive comments about Qatar in exchange for for lucrative items, including luxury wristwatches, per ABC News. The watches Menendez were allegedly offered were valued between $10,000 and $24,000, according to the new indictment. The indictment quoted co-defendant Fred Davies saying, how about one of these? And a message to Menendez, along with alleged photos of the watches.
0: The senator has pleaded not guilty to all prior counts. Back in 2021, Menendez and Davies reportedly attended a New York City event hosted by the Qatari government. Two days later, Davies allegedly sent Menendez a message about a Senate resolution supportive of Qatar, according to ABC. Over on MSNBC, White House anchor Alicia Menendez, who's Bob Menendez's daughter, was filling in for Nicole Wallace and passed the baton off to Ari Melber to report on the latest allegations against her father. Let's watch.
1: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with some breaking news right after this.
3: Hello, I'm Ari Melber with some breaking legal news. New Jersey United States Senator Robert Menendez now facing new allegations in a second Superseding indictment, which is filed by a federal grand jury from his DOJ prosecution. Those prosecutors there at the Justice Department now allege Menendez received gifts not only for allegedly helping the government of Egypt, but also for helping a developer, Fred Davies, get a multi million dollar investment from a company with ties to the government of Qatar.
1: All right. So, I mean, that's an awkward situation. Yeah, I mean,
0: they handled that correctly. If you have, if you have an anchor, that's better than you know when, uh, what, they when it, the what they did with the Cuomo's. Um, it is a you know a reminder, as so often appears to be the case. I mean, I've lived now in D.C. for, I think for for ten years continuously, and for for twelve years on and off um, in DC, in political media in D.C. and New York. Um, so many people are um, have famous la- have last names of political figures are sons and granddaughters and cousins and, um, you know, and they're very hardworking people and they do a lot of good work and it can be an awkward situation, but often it's much easier to get your start in this work. If you have someone well-connected to introduce you. Yeah, I was not all of us had such um, a, such a luxury, but, uh,
1: I actually, I, I, I think she does a good job, and I, yeah, I I'm really like not Went to law her. school with her, but I, one example that comes to mind is um, Valerie Jarrett's daughter. Uh, I think is a legal contrib- contributor on the MSNBC. Um, it, it, it is, it is the world uh, that we live in, and sometimes it works out for the better. But I think the bigger, the bigger issue, frankly, in corporate media is how many people are uh, employees of defense contracting firms mm-hmm. um, are undisclosed. Campaign operatives, um, often conservative campaign operatives who they love to give a job on MSNBC, uh, and who often carry water for the current administration, having recently left that administration, like uh, Jen Psaki, Uh, which might be okay if there was some more acknowledgement of their own kind of political bias in the mix but these are news outlets that hold themselves out as being uh, affirmatively neutral and in an instance like this when there's a direct family tie at very least the very least you can do is sort of cut away yeah Well, a new report shows politicians' stock trading estimations from 2023, and according to the data, some of the top performers include New York Congressman Brian Higgins, Tennessee Representative Mark Green, and Louisiana Congressman Garrett Graves.
0: Yeah, the reality is that a uh, $10,000 watch is chump change compared to some of the winnings our elected members of Congress can earn from their stock stuff that we talk about on on the show all the time is – Legal but shouldn't be uh, should be well sometimes it's not legal sometimes they're actually operating off um, insider information and a couple Republicans did go down for that um, in a in the like well, four years ago now but uh, but what Menendez is accused of doing is also quite bad even if it's of a different um, character you know say being bribed essentially by advocates for a foreign government to say nice things about them or to subtly influence legislation in, in exchange for like, what fancy dinners and fancy watches is the, is um, maybe in fact the more kind of obvious corruption that can actually work up public anger and resentment. Um, sure, just because of the color of it, but the
1: ProPublica reporting of the you know overwhelming number of uh, gifts that Clarence Thomas received. Um, from people who both came before him in the court and people who stated their desire to exert their influence with him has not resulted in any ramifications for him as well and has not been anywhere near a top-page story in the same way that, say, a Harvard professor's plagiarism accusations have been. So it does feel like the media plays a role in this. Um, Public opinion only goes so far, and the reality of our country is that for most people there are no consequences uh, for the kind of to play-to-pay schemes that are uh, common in Washington.
0: Well, right. Menendez has faced actual charges in the past um, for uh, violating—because there are are rules that Congress has to abide by on some of these gifts um, that have not—that some people would like them to apply to the Supreme Court, but have not applied yet. So we will see uh, if—what kind of consequences he faces for these disclosures, and we will have more rising right after this.
1: Donald Trump is back controlling the Republican National Committee. The former president will participate in a Fox News town hall airing at the same time as CNN's GOP primary debate on January 10th. Now, the CNN debate stage will be considerably smaller than last time. Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie failed to garner enough in the polls to qualify for the debate, meaning just Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are expected to participate on the 10th. Ramaswamy already announced, however, he would be skipping the debate anyway in protest of CNN's, quote, shenanigans. Ramaswamy says the network is propping up Nikki Haley and concealing truth from their viewers. Let's see what he's talking about during some CNN coverage from this week. Well, I got to ask you about a curiosity also in this mm-hmm. presidential race. Steve King mm. has endorsed Vivek Ramaswamy. He, last time he was seen, he was arguing that white supremacy was not so bad of a thing. Why is this happening?
2: I I don't know. I mean, I wish he he's like the bad penny that just won't go away. I which mean, I had my issues Steve with him, <laughs> him. Yes, in 2016 and what he did to Ben Carson in those caucuses, and I I don't know what it, it doesn't do anything for Vivek. I mean, it 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 really doesn't do anything except what Steve King is trying to do because he understands the caucus process, which is wound Desantis or Haley enough so that Trump can then squeak out a victory in Iowa and then move on to New Hampshire. Do you
1: there's a constituency for this that's that that will actually benefit Vivek a small
0: one Vivek is what at like four or five percent in the polls now he's very off-putting according to the most recent morning consult polling Trump is still far and away the primary leader earning about 66 percent of Republican voter support DeSantis and Haley are just about tied for second place at 11 percent each In a new Daily Mail general electorate poll, Nikki Haley trounces Joe Biden with 40 percent to 35 percent. Biden does, however, top Ron DeSantis by a few percentage points.
1: Yeah, I have to mention again that Marianne Williamson is still holding um, at a higher polling rate than so many Republican candidates that have been given town halls, debate platforms, et cetera, on the right side of the aisle. Even if Donald Trump isn't participating in those debates, they are at least getting an opportunity to be heard in front of the public. But the left candidates are getting no such opportunities. Dean Phillips, I would mention, but he is polling less well than Marianne Williamson. And it is shocking to see the so-called liberal media that ostensibly should have more interest in the left-leaning candidates go out of their way to platform Vivek Ramaswamy or RFK Jr. without. Platforming the only candidate in the Democratic race who Dean Phillips is going to say he supports Medicare for all now, but prior to six months ago supported Medicare for all or a number of other very popular uh, p- uh, policies that overwhelming majorities of Democratic voters want.
0: Yeah, no disagreement there. It's um, totally inexcusable. Um, they have they have more interest, and I'm I'm glad they're. Uh, Get, providing a platform to the other Republican candidates as well. Um, uh, Fox has been doing that, uh, but there's a there's been a blackout. I mean, I hope all networks put on Marianne Williamson and give her more of an opportunity to explain her thinking, because there are plenty of Americans, with, both within the Democratic coalition and not explicitly within the Democratic coalition, that are at least interested in, say they're very interested in, an alternative to Joe Biden. So why not Hear from some of those purported alternatives. It's uh, it's baffling, but we know why that is. The attitude of the DNC and, and you know their mouthpieces on uh, mainstream media is that there should be no primary and there should be no debate. Joe Biden is the incumbent, and thus he is he is he should be he it's it is it is his. It it need not be. Uh, be it's bestowed upon him; he did, shouldn't have to fight for it. That's the attitude of people like um, Simone Sanders and others who we've, you know, played their clips on the All show.
1: Right. So while uh, the, uh, the polls, I think the last ones I saw from the end of last year, Williamson was at 12% by in NBC, NBC News poll, 13 in Fox News, 12% in Kinnepiak, compared to Vivek Ramaswamy's uh, now apparently 4%. Are you surprised that Vivek's uh, poll numbers have fallen this much? And to what do you attribute that to? Do you agree that with with him that it's that Fox News is rigging the game against him by uh, re- pumping up Nikki Haley.
0: No, I don't know whether that's the case. Um, look, he uh, he uh, made some some waves. He got a lot of headlines for himself, got a lot of attention, and uh, he did have his poll numbers start to creep up. But, um, again, I think his, his support overlaps so sustan- substantially with Donald Trump. Um, I, frankly, he seems to be a Trump surrogate on the debate stage, uh, making the case for Trump. Frankly more effectively than he's trying to make any case for himself He's really there to make try to make a case against Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley to delegitimize them on Trump's behalf I mean, I think it's pretty maybe that might be the mainstream knock on what he's doing But I I think it is fairly clear that that is what he's doing So well, maybe he's seeing himself as perfectly successful because Trump is keeping his uh, his poll numbers still significantly higher than Well, if his the
1: argument is that Vivek opponents. Ramaswamy doesn't have traction because he's too similar to Donald Trump, what accounts for the fact that he used to have much better poll numbers even against Donald Trump than he has now? It seems like something has changed to put voters off him compared to how they felt about him, say, six months ago.
0: Yeah, look, I'm not a Vivek booster. Maybe people found his style abrasive and off-putting. I, I like... Some of the things he says, I mean, for me, he's an interesting figure. I think he clearly used to have more, um, I think he said this, that he used to be a libertarian. So when I hear him talk about issues, I will occasionally hear him say something very near and dear to my heart. And then I will also hear him say something that he knows is not libertarian because he's he's moved on from that ideology. Um, This Steve King thing is actually a perfect example. He had a tweet the other day um, praising both. Ron Paul and Steve King, and I also have a lot of affection for Ron Paul, and I'm glad to see him praised. Um, I don't particularly have any affection for Steve King, who I mean, did say, who you know said a number of things, including like why what's wrong with how did how did white nationalism how did white supremacism become offensive terms? I mean that doesn't really require any explanation, my dude. So you know why even lump these people together? Um, you know that's maybe that's turning people off.
1: Mm. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's it. Um, I was looking at a New York Times um, report on his campaigning in Iowa that they spoke to some local folks there about how they were feeling about Ramaswamy. One voter named Jerry Nelson, age 46, said, I'd like to see a Ramaswamy presidency, but I think he's got a steep hill to climb. Um, he's worried that a uh, vote for Ramaswamy could Instead of Donald Trump, could help Nikki Haley, and that perhaps Nikki Haley's emergence as a front runner has caused people to be more skittish mm-hmm. about um, looking at alternative. I mean,
0: candidates. that would actually back up my theory that there's a lot of, um, there's some, there's a profound fear of and distrust toward. Nikki Haley among the most conservative um, uh, voters among the MAGA base. Now, obviously, that's not all Republicans. There are a lot of moderate Republicans for whom I think she's far away—she has emerged far and away as the consensus choice. Um, the Koch network got has gotten behind her entirely, um, despite her having a foreign policy that I think is, frankly, very different from what the Koch network uh, professes to say is important. Um, again, she is no—she <laughs> is no moderate on foreign policy, except in the sense that, well, actually, moderates are some of the hawkish people, defending, you know, depending on how you start sorting out what counts as conservative or what counts as liberal on foreign policy. Um, it's, uh, it's not as clear. She's certainly someone who belongs to the previous Bush-era consensus on those issues, um, which is why I have a lot of skepticism of her, but it is clear that her presentation and her Acceptableness or moderation on a lot of other issues, uh, including most notably abortion, has, is I think certainly helping her. And um, you know, we can read the poll numbers as well as anyone else. It looks like right now she would be she's much more of a slam dunk against uh, against Biden than anyone else. So if you just want to win, I mean, there's your there's your most compelling option.
1: What do you think the role of Vivek Ramaswamy emphasizing January sixth as an inside job might have played?
0: I mean. January 6th is not something that swing voters, that get persuadable voters really want to talk about anymore, I think, has emerged. The backward-looking nature of Donald Trump's—his focus on relitigating the election uh, proved very cancerous to his candidates in, um, in Georgia and Arizona and Nevada in the 2022 Senate races. So, it, it may very well be something that hurts him among among gettable voters, while still being an issue that, again, the conservative base, the MAGA base, does want to hear something about. I mean, we, some of those people watch our show, and we don't. I, we're not relitigating um, the election, but we do. I I have talked about, <laughs> you know, full disclosure, um, some of the uh, how the media narratives about January 6th uh, have. Sometimes been overreach and some of the excessively harsh sentences that I think people who weren't even there have received, um, you know, without fundamentally disagreeing that it was, in fact, a riot and Donald Trump does bear some blame.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we'll continue to follow all the polling on the upcoming presidential race. Stick with us. We have more rising for you right after this.
0: Tucker Carlson is trolling the mainstream media with a new billboard displayed smack dab in the middle of Times Square. Let's take a look. For those who can't see, the ad shows Carlson's new logo alongside the logos of outlets like CNN, ABC, and The New York Times. Carlson advertises his new network as, quote, your great replacement.
1: Carlson's most recent guest was Jeffrey Gundlach, founder of Double Line Media investment firm. The pair discussed the rationale behind the Fed lowering interest rates. Let's watch.
3: This is unprecedented to have a rising deficit with what's what's considered to be close to full employment. So we have a debt based economic scheme. The deficit is a percent of GDP is running at above 6%. People talk about this is a good economy, but if we actually didn't run a budget deficit, if we had a balanced budget, GDP would be negative over the last 12 months. And so this is the fundamental problem. And I think that's factoring somewhat into the Fed's logic.
1: Of course, the Great Replacement Theory is an ethno-nationalist theory that non-white immigrants to United States of America or other predominantly white countries uh, are an existential threat to the white populations. Um, The Great Replacement Theory was a theory that was adopted by the Christchurch shooter in New Zealand when he killed 51 people attacking two mosques there, and also in the um, El Paso shooting in 2019. That shooter uh, also subscribed to the Great Replacement uh, Theory. So, you know, is it's an interesting choice.
0: Hmm. Right, Tucker's one of the uh, people on the right who uh, worries about too many immigrants coming in and changing the too, character too many of the nation. Immigrants. Right. Too many immigrants coming in and making the country, uh, changing its values, impacting crime and poverty and those sorts of things. I try to tackle this from a I from a. I am I'm skeptical of this theory because a lot of the immigrants who enter our country um, actually have a range of political views. Um, uh, Trump is. Uh, every rep- is, is poised to do better with um, with uh, um, immigrants from our southern border, obviously. Um, there is a lot of uh, the, a lot of the problems we have in the country is it's not clear to me they're caused by people entering the country. Um, crime is not disproportionately caused by immigrants by any stretch of the imagination. I want people to be able to come here legally, work, pay taxes, Build houses. We need we need to build things in this country. We can't close ourselves off. Obviously, the mad scramble over the border that is um, unplanned and unscheduled is difficult for the people who live there and for the you know the authorities have to put people in tents. That kind of thing. So we need to fix the system so that doesn't happen. Well, this isn't just um, a
1: targeting undocumented immigrants. Great Replacement theory thinks that documented legal immigrants are a problem. And I want to really stress this is about non-white. Immigrants the objection is not to people immigrating from Italy or Poland or Ukraine In fact, Ukrainian immigrants got fast-tracked over many others who are waiting in line This well, is specifically about
0: I, I don't know that Tucker Carlson would be in love with that either. But. This is
1: specifically about non-white immigrants destroying the character of the United States of America and while some of the leaders of the Great Replacement movement insist that they are a non-violent movement it is Worth noting, not just the the ones that I mentioned, the mass shooting events that I mentioned, but additionally, the Buffalo shooter um, was tied to the Great Replacement ideology, and some of the violence. You mentioned that immigrants don't commit violence at highest rates, high, higher rates than um, native-born Americans. What we're seeing is a lot of native-born Americans who are taking this theory and running with it, and executing mass shooting events that are resulting in the death of non-white people. These people who were targeted for being black at the Buffalo shooting, and of course the mosques that were, have been targeted as well in the earlier shooting I mentioned. So I mean, it, it, it is an interesting thing that we're in a place politically where these sorts of things aren't taken seriously at all, such that Tucker Carlson can, can joke um, about them in an expensive billboard in Times Square. And I don't know, is Tuck, You know, who's going to ask Tucker Carlson or the people who? believe what he believes why exactly they feel like non-white immigrants pose a threat to the United States of America while white immigrants don't have any effect on the national character of I don't the know country that Tucker
0: distinguishes I mean it's a it's not a I think it's a cultural issue not a racial issue but I don't know that he wants in a lot of immigrants from Europe either um, I think he frankly doesn't now I I happen to disagree on this issue. I am more supportive of immigration than a lot of people on the right because I actually don't think immigrants fundamentally change our national character. And a lot of a lot of the problem we have actually come from the native population. If you only want to look at it in like strictly ideological terms, um, uh, 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 progressivism is uh, is a is a homegrown mentality. Um, a lot of the policies we don't like are you know coming out of the. Um, Ivy League out of American institutions um, a lot of immigrants are in this country are actually more religious than the native uh, population more culturally conservative more suspicious of socialism more uh, willing to work so I don't quite get the problem with immigrants that the right has um, maybe you want to maybe some of it is strictly xenophobia I'm always trying to challenge people on the right when I hear these ideas you know you're you're saying you you're, you oppose all these ideologies. Well, they're, they're they're coming out of Harvard. They're coming out of our institutions. They're already here. We can't keep them out of the country. And in fact, a lot of the people who come to the country, come here because they love America. They want to be American. They want to work here. And we have to find a way for them to contribute meaningfully. And and that would be um, that would be good. That would be healthy for our country. So I'm I'm not someone on the right who really buys into this idea. And
1: yet there's so many people on the right who are. So I'm reminded, I did a radar about this uh, over a year ago in response to a video that Tucker had done um, talking about the Great Replacement Theory in, in so many words. In that clip, he said that the Immigration Act of 1965 was the greatest attack on democracy since the Civil War. The Immigration Act of 1965 is the greatest attack on democracy since the Civil War. Okay, now what was the... Uh, Immigration Act of 1965, it ended the quota system, which had made it so that, um, only, you know, groups that were perceived to be unworthy of immigrating to the United States, um, including Asians, Africans, and even, you know, Italians, were no longer precluded uh, and kept down as compared to more um, esteemed Western European and Northern European groups that were allowed to immigrate at much higher numbers. So, again, you have to ask the question why would someone see a law that got rid of racial quota systems that privileged uh, certain kinds, not even all white, but certain kinds of white immigrants be considered to imperil the quality of Americans? And then he went on to say that new voters were going to be a problem, uh, that, that the new voters, specifically uh, on, on the rolls, would imperil the American way of life, that Democrats were replacing old voters with new voters, which begs the question, are some Americans, if you can vote, you're American. So why are some Americans and their votes being seen as less legitimate or less good as other Americans in their yeah, votes? Yeah,
0: look, the, the whole demographics or destiny idea it became very, really spooked the right when it got proposed. It was proposed by liberals that you know I, I don't remember when this argument first got made. That don't worry, we're going to win forever because soon there will be enough immigrants, and we do so well with uh, with incoming non-white populations that we're set for life. And that was very influential, and was it was taken as a as an uh, attack by conservatives. And so they've been playing defense against that idea. I, I think it's a pernicious idea that's that's not true. Again, if, if you think. These ideologies, the, the affluent white people are some of the most loyal Democrats at this point in our in in our time. People who've you know who've who lived here, who, whose grandparents came over on the Mayflower, or great 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 grandparents came over on the Mayflower, are are, uh, are, are liberal progressive Democrats who love Elizabeth Warren. So um, the idea that we just keep keep everybody out and stick to the voting of the of the of the people born in America, we would like and the scourge of, of liberalism or progressivism isn't true. So I'm not a, I'm not a su- subscriber of the theory.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to, I've been reminded, I wrote a lot of interesting stuff on this, right, I strong recommend, that the Buffalo shooter um, described the declining white birth rate as mass genocide. White people not having more children is mass genocide. And so the argument that people say about great replacement is that it's dangerous precisely because when you present the existence of other people who are not white, as an existential threat to white people, you are going to dehumanize non-white people and make the lower the threshold for violence against them. If you think that low white birth rates are tantamount to, tantamount to genocide and that your people are being genocided, then of course that is going to justify and legitimize in the eyes of some people doing actual genocide and violence against the people who you perceive to be a threat. And that's the concern and i am sorry if i'm a scold and uncool for not thinking it's a funny own but uh, grandmothers young people parents died when a great replacement maniac ta- specifically said where do black people live and went to a grocery store that he knew was going to be frequented by black people and shot folks in buffalo people died in new zealand When a shooter said, I'm being replaced and I'm gonna go track down Muslims at their mosques and their place of worship and murder them in cold blood. So, you know, it's an interesting choice. That's all I have to say.
0: All right. I think it behooves everyone to tone down their rhetoric, although, as I always say, I don't think. You are responsible for what people do based on the things you say. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be more responsible about what you say. And we we should be thankful that there is very little politically motivated violence in our society. Most violence is committed for other reasons. You'll have more Rising right after this.
1: The U.S. State Department was forced to condemn statements by Israeli ministers Smotrich and Ben Gvir on an Israeli plan to relocate masses of Palestinians to other Arab nations or to the Sinai Peninsula, the kinds of plans of ethnic cleansing that defenders of Palestinian rights have been arguing or was happening for weeks now. In a translated tweet announcing his thoughts, Smutrich wrote, more than 70 percent of the Israeli public today supports a humanitarian solution of encouraging the voluntary immigration of Gaza Arabs and their absorption in other countries, understanding that a small country like ours cannot afford a reality. We're four minutes away from our settlements. There is a hotbed of hatred and terrorism, for two million people who wake up every morning with aspiration, and here's Gavir saying the quiet part out loud.
3: The kingdom pitaron, sheliydu da agira, shel toshvei aza, anachnu chayavim lekaden. The pitaron nakhon, tzodek, musari, umani. I'm Kore, the Rosh Hamemshala, and the Sarachu Tsar Chadash. שאני מברך אותו כאן. זה
0: ההזדמנות לרכז עכשיו פרויקט אגירה. פרויקט של עידוד אגירתם של תושבים מעזה אל מדינות העולם. שלא נטעה. יש לנו פרטנרים ברחבי העולם שאנחנו יכולים להסתייע בי. יש אישים ברחבי העולם שאנחנו יכולים לקדם איתם את הרעיון הזה. עידוד, אגירה.
1: Now, these comments from Israel's national security minister drew harsh, harsh criticism from the U.S. State Department officials who wrote, The United States rejects the inflammatory and irresponsible statements from Israeli ministers Smotrich and Ben gvir There should be no mass displacement of Palestinians from Gaza.
0: Senator Bernie Sanders also weighed in on the conflict posting on Twitter. Let me be clear, no more U.S. funding for Netanyahu's illegal, immoral, brutal, and grossly disproportionate war against the Palestinian people. Congress must reject any effort to pass $10 billion of unconditional military aid for the right-wing Netanyahu government. Sanders' comments come as Netanyahu has expressed his desire for Alan Dershowitz to represent Israel at the genocide trial coming up soon. Ellen Dershowitz, a frequent guest on our show. Uh, Let's start with Bernie Sanders. Um, Is it just my perception, correct me if I'm wrong, that he has reversed course somewhat to being uh, more Vocal in his condemning of uh, of Netanyahu and b- being against uh, additional funding, uh, he well, previously said something about how there shouldn't be a ceasefire or couldn't be.
1: Well, the funding issue and the ceasefire issue are different issues. He has throughout um, offered pushback to the dollars that have been going out of the door to substantially fund the bombing campaign against Gaza, and has long for a, mo- most of this conflict been an advocate of putting conditions on aid to Israel, such that it cannot be used to commit any war crimes. Now, that's already a law that exists, but it's a law that we turn the other, our heads the other way for when it comes to Israel, so he's been trying to get that enforced. But he has declined to call for a ceasefire, despite that—whatever—that line, whatever that is, is inscrutable to so many leftists and has gotten him a lot of criticism. I think the big issue here, the big story, is that Israeli leadership has been saying things that seem to announce their intent here and what their aims are for Gaza throughout this conflict. We've gone over and over some of those early statements about human animals and how we have to turn Gaza into a parking lot. But now it seems like the tenor of those remarks from people who are so senior, like Ben Gavir, expressly saying that the plan is to ethnically—definitionally, to ethnically cleanse Gaza to say that the 2.3 million people who live there cannot live there anymore, they have to be shuttled off to neighboring countries that have absolutely nothing to do with this conflict, is textbook ethnic cleansing such that I think it really coerced out of the State Department, finally, a statement that says, we're not going along with this. Now, the pushback to the State State Department's um, statement has been, well, this is not new news. And you are now putting out a statement saying that this is inappropriate behavior and that we don't condone it, at the same time that you were continuing to fund and to provide weapons for exactly this kind of behavior. So what this really does seem to be is an optics battle, where the United States would really like Israel to stop announcing its violation of international law quite so loudly because of the obvious way that it's implicating our own State Department.
0: I mean, the plan is also a non-starter because no Arab nation actually wants to accept the Palestinians. There's nowhere for them to go um, because I, I they mean, don't they, want to
1: uh, participate don't. in ethnic cleansing. And so many of them mm. have already taken so many Palestinians in the first place. When the Nakba happened in 1948, uh, for example, uh, Jordan—sorry, um, not Jordan—Lebanon uh, ended up taking uh, eventually 300,000 Palestinians, for instance. Uh, and so they've already shouldered a lot of this refugee burden. The reason that Hezbollah even exists is because of a m- resistance movement out of the Palestinians who were pushed into Lebanon after the 19, um, uh, after the Nakba and who were politicized after the 1982 uh, Israel-Lebanese war.
0: Yes. Given that Gaza has been destroyed, I think it would be ideal if they would take even more, and I will point out that what the, the statements by the officials were a voluntary migration, not a forced relocation that would count as ethnic cleansing. You can say that's BS, and what they really want is to forcibly do it, and they're making it—they're giving them another choice because they're destroying um, Gaza. I would say that. And that's fine, and I wish that hadn't happened, too. Uh, it has happened, and I can't imagine these people living there, and so it would be better if they could go to Arab countries at this point, would it not?
1: If I blew up your house, would it be a voluntary a voluntary eviction? No, but I would probably go live somewhere else, wouldn't I? Right. <laughs> so, the obligation is the, of the international community is not to validate Israel's illegal actions or to validate their illegal occupation. It is interesting that um, in, I think it was Ben Gavir's statement, he referenced Israeli settlements and how dangerous it is for Israelis to have to live in proximity to Palestinians in their settlements. Those settlements are illegal and have been deemed illegal by the United Nations and any other international law authority that you want to point to. And that we there are hundreds of thousands of people who have occupied um, these settlements in the West Bank and who have been spending the last three months since October seventh, ratcheting up violence against the Palestinian uh, population there, killing hundreds of Palestinians, again, in this part of, 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 of the world where Hamas is not in political leadership or control at all. So the irony of saying that illegal settlements have to be protected from the people who have a legal right under international law to live there by expelling them from the country is pretty grotesque as well. It's worth mentioning that this isn't the only statement of this sort that um, has been going around. Recently, um, we had um, another member of the Likud party, that's Netanyahu's party, who, again, articulated this, frankly, violation of international law. We've been making this argument that there has been um, collective punishment, which is a violation of international law, where you deny food, water, et cetera, medical supplies to an entire population in order to meet your political aims. This um, woman, Tali Gottlieb, said, without hunger and thirst among the Gaza population, we will not be able to recruit collaborators. We will not be able to recruit intelligence. We will not be able to bribe people with food, drink, medicine in order to obtain intelligence. We know that finding the abductees is a supreme and a, and a super important goal alongside the goals of fighting. So basically saying, yes, we're doing po- collective punishment for these strategic goals, self-described de- de- strategic goals, whatever rationale you want to give to it, it's it's an, these admissions over and over again that there are these violations of international law, which is why people are saying that this South Africa bringing Israel before the International Criminal Court is a really um, compelling move, because unlike in most cases where you're trying to prove genocide or ethnic cleansing or collective punishment, Israeli officials themselves have been saying pretty loudly, yes, this is what we're doing.
0: All right. Thank you for that update. More rising right after this. Breaking January 6 news to get to prosecutors say military veteran and Oath Keepers chapter president Ray Epps should face just six months of jail time for his alleged role in the January 6 Capitol riot. Assistant United States Attorney Michael Gordon said in the 29-page sentencing memo that Epps committed felonious conduct that day, but prosecutors acknowledged that Epps was targeted by an alleged conspiracy theory that, quote, falsely suggested he was an undercover government agent during the riot, per NBC News.
1: Prosecutors said, quote, other than his four years in the Marines, Epps has never been a federal agent. And the aftermath of the alleged conspiracies, forced Epps to sell his business, move to a different state, and live reclusively. Epps is scheduled to be sentenced next week.
0: Yes. So I see a lot of conservative chatter about this. Um, So obviously he is getting off lightly because he helped the government's case, he cooperated, et cetera. There has been a long theory promulgated by some conservatives that he was a government asset. No evidence of that has ever been presented. Um, However, I, I do find the, you know, if you just consider the side by side they actually have ray epps on video at at both the ride itself and the day before urging people to storm the capitol to go into the building being called out for doing so clearly on camera and he's gonna get six months whereas someone like you know enrique tario who wasn't even there wasn't even there on january 6 gets 20 plus years terrorism charges um, you know, that's the reality when you cooperate or don't cooperate, I guess. Uh, and actually, Enrique Tario was in the past a government asset, We're adding a whole new wrinkle to this. But um, I think some on the right are, uh, far from seeing this as disproving that he was an asset, are going to see a double standard at play.
1: The average, uh, the median prison sentence for January six rioters is 60 days. Uh, Epps got six months.
0: Yeah, but as I said, some of the Foremost alleged leaders of a terrorist level conspiracy to overthrow the government, alleged by the government, got um, decades in prison.
1: So, the actual guy who was a government informant, people are complaining that he his sentence is too high. I would argue the sentence is too high. I'm We've never going to advocate for a higher sentence. very high. But to be clear, the argument people are making is that Epps is a government informant, that he instigated this, and that therefore his sentence should be like they're mad that the, uh, the guy who actually was mm-hmm. a government informant should have a lower sentence well tario was have... was
0: not a government informant in the January 6 context mm-hmm. he was a government informant many years before um, no they're they they thought they think they I mean they think he got off easy because he's a government asset again i will restate i have been presented no evidence actually that he is a government asset people people found it Weird or suspicious that he, despite being on camera urging people to enter the building, repeatedly. Um, and I don't know what the you say the average sentence is much lower than that, but you know, no, some the of the people,
1: is, yeah, the average sentence is just sure. 60 but days. But some people,
0: I mean, the what the, the the guy, the horns in the head guy, got. I mean, he was in, he was sitting in uh, in like isolation uh, for for months awaiting trial, and then got and then got more than six months.
1: Wait, so you're arguing that the guy I'm not
0: arguing anything, I'm just telling you what I'm saying. Well people, people are saying. saying
1: that the speech rights, the guy who who's who, who stood outside and spoke should have a higher sentence than the people who actually trespassed at the Capitol, who went inside the building and jumped around on furniture. And I'm saying they
0: gave around. they gave the most punitive sentences to people. Described as leaders of what was happening, including people who weren't even there, and he urged people, instructed people, to enter the Capitol on two separate occasions, and this is what he got. Maybe that's okay. that, maybe that's maybe they, he's getting exactly the correct thing, and it doesn't matter. I'm just translating for you what I'm seeing.
1: I don't know. I, I, civil liberties interests are never going to argue for people getting more jail time, yeah. and it does seem like he has three times more jail time than the average. Uh, person convicted of crimes related to January sixth. So I have a hard I have a hard time with that, especially since the his deservedness seems to largely be hinged, hinged, hinging on folks's belief, unsubstantiated or unproven, that he was a government plant. Right. Um, and moreover, I do think some of the mitigating factors, the way that he's been um, targeted and already experienced some of these uh, harms and having to go into seclusion and having his businesses ruined and stuff. It's not illegitimate to think of those as mitigating factors. Um, but, you know, when people are complaining about sentences, I think that they should be able to articulate how long and why they think someone should be incarcerated. Incarceration is a really big deal. And if the broader argument is that people have been put in jail too long for 1-6, it seems odd and sort of incongruent to be desiring um, for one well, I'm of not, the people present yeah, I'm not desiring anything
0: honor. and the the sentences for the trespassing and all that seem within Reason to me for the most part. I, I I do again We agree on this the the terrorism enhancement sentences for leaders some of whom weren't even there that to my mind really assume What was a totally unproven? Larger, very organized, very planned and coordinated attack on the Capitol when that is not that doesn't comport with what I saw when I was covering it. Um, it. seemed crazy to me, and those are the sentences I really object to. I don't, I don't object to the, you know, between you know weeks to six months or whatever that uh, people got. I, I do think I don't like. The idea of anyone, uh, you know, languishing in solitary, as I believe the um, I keep calling them the horns guy, the audience knows who I'm mm-hmm. referring to, mm-hmm. uh, seemed uh, seemed pretty pretty awful. Uh, reg- again, regardless of the regardless of the crime you've committed, you don't you know, prison shouldn't be torture. Um, mm-hmm. it, it it should be you know.
1: Yeah. Look, Corresponding domestic with the crime terrorism you committed. enhancements are a huge problem. Yeah. As we've discussed, the cop city protesters in Atlanta were hit with those charges for raising money for a bail fund for distributing pamphlets and mailers to people, a clear violation of their First Amendment rights. And we're seeing these terrorism enhancements being applied to protect the property interests of private companies having nothing to do with terrorism. When we see um, uh, eco-environmental protesters tying themselves to pipes or trees or whatnot, or even causing damage to the structures, you can sue them for damage, you can arrest them for uh, um, property damage the same way you would do in any other context, but throwing them in jail for longer than murderers uh, because of a terrorism enhancement, I think really um, undermines some fundamental rights that we have in this country.
0: I absolutely agree. Terrorism, as applied to domestic political actors on the right and left who may have committed other crimes that I am absolutely fine charging them for, but um, just seems a way to be totally punitive, to worsen our you know, the state of our mass incarceration, which is costly for society and has all their kinds of downstream problems. Um, and, and the way—and the way, I'm sure this happens all the time, but because I specifically read the, the Tario sentencing document or one of the others, it became so clear how it works, where they say—where they just overcharge. They say terrorism, so it should be 30 years. And the judge says, eh, it was kind of like 50 percent terrorism. How about 15 years? And they say sold, and it, it, does, it seems totally unconnected to— Uh, a basic principle of fairness. So uh, that does it for us today. Tomorrow on Rising, we will cover the most important stories and give you just all the best takes. We know how in love with our takes you are every day. Thank you. Thank you for that.
1: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts.
0: We will close out the week with you tomorrow.
1: Take care.